When I arrived here early this morning before the first service, Laura McAlpin, y'all know Laura, our children's minister, she's the best. She greeted me and she said, Robert, I quote, she said, you don't look too good. And I said to her, there goes your Christmas bonus. But uh, as Topher said at the beginning, a lot of folks been sick. Anybody been feeling under the weather, a little less than stellar, subpar? The onslaught set on me yesterday, so I don't feel that good today. You guys pray that God sustains me through today. And that's just preacher talk, by the way. When a preacher says he doesn't feel well, he's getting sick, that's just a way of saying the sermon is going to be kind of mediocre today. Just, uh, just so you know that, a little shout out to that. Glad that you're here. You know, a lot of you do know that we're going to tie a bow on today, a five-week series. This is a sermon message number five. Melinda did a great one. and We've had a few um, other ones. Uh, this series is called What Not to Wear. We've looked at Colossians chapter 3, several verses there where Paul says, hey, don't put this on put this on. And we talked about some of those things that just don't look good on anybody and how we ought not to clothe ourselves with them. And then we correspondingly have looked at a couple things that we need to put on. Last week, we looked at uh, this section. Paul mentioned several things of of compassionate heart. You ought to put on a compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, and such. And we looked at that idea of what is a compassionate heart, uh, looking at Jesus and his healings and his conversations and his parables. Compassion is the ability the character uh, idea in us where we can uh, empathize with somebody. We can feel what they feel and see how we ought to see and do what we ought to do. I uh, noticed this this week online. I don't know if any of you have seen this. A really remarkable example of empathy and compassion. Take a look. Mommy's going to sing you a song. You want mommy to sing a song, honey? <laughs> Let me know how you feel about the song, Okay. I don't want you to come around here no more. I beg you for mercy. You don't know how strong my weakness is or how much it hurts me. Cause when you say it's Isn't that remarkable? 
Just remarkable. Now, let's go from that bald-headed thing to this bald-headed thing. Now, when I saw that this week, I had a few thoughts, three thoughts in particular. Number one, I thought of when the psalmist said that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, he wasn't fooling. I mean, remarkable empathy that this child has when uh, the child lifts the brows and trembles the chin. He's saying, Mommy, if you're sad, I'm sad too. The second thing I think of is uh, the child's going to be a great counselor, therapist one day, right? And uh, then I thought, thirdly, uh, what kind of mom deliberately makes her baby cry, right? And sings a country song with hell in it. I mean, come on. The child's going to need a great therapist one day, don't you think? Um, There are uh, researchers show, um, sociologists, psychologists, experts have said, uh, this is no surprise, that the single uh, most common expression of human emotion uh, is love. But the second most common expression surprised me. It's, it's one of regret. Uh, here's a clip from one of my favorite movies the last couple my years. My hands are shaking from carrying this torch, from carrying this torch for you. Look, he took a bus here. He has relatives in Boston. Dad. Dad, he loves me. Okay. You don't have to worry. When it comes to sex, Marty is the one who wants to wait. What about that sentence is supposed to give me comfort? <laughs> I love him. Honey. I love him. Oh. I love him. I love him. I love him. No, you don't. What we have is true love. And just because you don't have it doesn't mean you have to punish us. Infatuation is not love. Sexual attraction is not love. You don't understand. I don't understand. No, you don't even understand that you don't understand. What don't I understand, Kara? Please, help me out. What is it? It's frustrating you can't be with this person? That that there's something keeping you apart? That there's something about this person you really connect with? And whenever you're near this person, you don't know what to say. And you say everything that's in your mind and in your heart. And you know that if you could just be together, that this person would help you become the best possible version of yourself. So Marty can stay. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Marty can stay. <laughs> Howard is going to drive you to the bus. We called your aunt. She'll be waiting for you in Boston. Yes, sir. Look, I'm not. Your parent, but I think you should know, love is a dangerous feeling. No, sir. Are you arguing with me? No, I'm. It's just. El amor no es un sentimiento, es una habilidad. Love is not a feeling, it's an ability. Who told you that? Made it up, Mr. Burns. Come say goodbye. Window. I miss you okay, so much, Dad. She'll see him again soon enough. That's sweet. What's sweet? How, how's that sweet? It's okay. It's okay. To be that certain to feel so much love. Love isn't a feeling. 
No. It's an ability. <laughs> well, if that's true, you you have one gifted daughter. <laughs> you are a murderer of love. going to put up this morning uh, as we think about love, as we think about regret, I'm going to put up a beautiful passage from Colossians 3. I mentioned last week that when we uh, read it today that some of you would probably say, some of you married folks, hey, this was uh, read at my uh, wedding, Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 12 to 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, here we go, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In other words, Paul is saying, don't be a murderer of love. Let's do our part to fan the flames of love, to encourage each other for greater depths of love. It's the perfect bond of peace, of unity for us as we follow Jesus. I want to put up now... Uh, That's the pretty part. Now I want to put up the powerful part, the part that we understand, words from Jesus. Uh, I bet some of you have heard this before, but it's one of the most misapplied, misunderstood passages because it takes a lot of courage to live this out. But man, this is powerful if we could get this right. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 15, he said, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother." There's seven things, basically. You note-takers, here we go. The first one is, he says what? You'll have this verse memorized or paraphrased before you go. He says that uh, if there's a conflict, okay? The idea here is uh, to acknowledge the conflict. Recognize that it's there, that it's a reality. I want to say to you this morning, somebody needs to hear this today, that conflict is inevitable, but resentment is optional. You get that? Everybody, I mean, let's all raise our hands. How many of you have had conflict, even recently, right? You've had some level of conflict in your life. Conflict is inevitable. Resentment is optional. It's your choice. It's your choice. Jesus gives us what we need. He gives us the wisdom, the wherewithal, the insight. He gives us what we need to not live lives of great regret or deep resentment. He does. You have have the choice. But conflict, it's inevitable. There's conflict in the world. I've pulled from some recent FBI statistics that there's a a domestic dispute every 23 seconds. There's an aggravated assault every 48 seconds. There's a murder every 26 minutes. The number one reason that women go to the ER, to the emergency room, is domestic violence. Uh, Every divorce, every broken home in some way is systematic Uh, symptomatic rather, of anger not dealt with, of conflict, um, you know, avoidance or escalated anger. It has something to do with that. Parents who don't model, who don't show their children how to deal with anger, how to handle conflict, they wound their kids. They wound their kids deeply. And those kids grow up to do what? They repeat the pattern. And a lot of you know just what I'm talking about. Uh, There's conflict in the world and there's Ready for this? Everybody gasp when I, when I say it, but there's conflict in the church. <gasps> there is. 
there's conflict. Do you know that there's uh, thousands of different denominations? And some of you pride ourselves, yourself. I go to Foner Church. We're non-denominational. Now let's talk about the denominations. But there's a whole lot of different Baptist churches. That's my heritage, Southern Baptist. But there's not just Southern Baptist. There's Northern Baptist. There's General Baptist. There's Primitive Baptist. There's Free Will Baptist. There's probably Free Willy Baptist. Uh, there's just a lot of different Baptist denominations, over 30-something in particular. Uh, there's a denomination called the Church of God. Some people didn't like them. They split, and they called themselves the True Church of God. And as some people didn't like that church, and they split, this is for real, they're called the Only True Church of God. And that sent a message to the Church of God and the True Church of God when they named themselves the Only True Church of God. So imagine all the resentment that's around them, Right? But in the church we fight, and I don't have this on the, on the screen, but 1 Corinthians 3, 3, Paul said to the church at Corinth that we reference a lot that had a lot of trouble. He introduces this carnality, this idea of, well, are you in Christ or are you in the flesh? And it, It's profound teaching. It's confusing teaching for a lot of us. But Paul says, what's up with all the jealousy and quarreling among you? Does it not show that you've got a lot of worldliness in you? Now, that's strong language, and the idea, though, if you take it positively, if you elevate it, the good in that is you and I ought to be different. We ought to handle things differently. I'll say it again. Conflict is inevitable, but resentment is optional. Jesus says if there's conflict, and the best translations of that show us or ought to show us, English has its limits from the Greek language, but it should say when you have conflict because we all do. Jesus said... If I, when you have conflict, he says, you go to that person. Now, let's stop with that word, you. We're going to put a weight on you here. And then following Jesus ought to be a joy. It's a freedom. Some of you are finding that out. To follow Jesus is a joy. There's a freedom there. His burden, it's light. The yoke is easy. There's a great happiness in following Jesus. Some of you are uncomfortable with that. The great sermon on the mount, Jesus said, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. He was saying, hey, you want to be happy? Listen to what I'm saying to you. He wants you and I to be happy. Jesus says, though, in this passage, that there's a burden that we do bear, and the burden is that you go first. When it comes to conflict, now in this passage, he says that if there's a conflict, if someone has sinned against you, you go to them. Jesus also teaches what? He says, if you are the cause of conflict, you go to them. Do you get that? Go. Take the first step. Don't miss that today. Jesus wants you to play a part in dealing with the conflict. If you've been wronged, who ought to go? You. If you've wronged someone, who ought to go? You. Do you feel the weight of what Jesus is saying? If there's a conflict, when there is, you go. So here we see, we see acknowledge the conflict. The second idea is is own it. Own the responsibility. You, you, you. And the third thing here is approach, don't avoid. Approach, don't avoid. Don't avoid. Now, don't raise your hand because you'll indict yourself, but how many of you, you like to avoid? You'd rather sit and stew. You have found that it's more fun to pout. You don't want to go. You want to wait. You think they ought to come to you. You think they should approach you for what you did wrong. Or, heck, they did you wrong. You're going to wait till they come and talk to you. You'll go passive-aggressive. You'll hold it in. And Jesus has given remarkable advice for us that's easy to understand but hard to live out. 
If there's a conflict, you go. Now, there's a prevailing reasoning out there today that says uh, to avoid, to stuff it, can actually be healthy. And that's really not true. It's not true. We're called to go, to take the initiative. Now, let me say, if you garner the courage to initiate, to do what Jesus is teaching, to not be a murderer of love, to go and to show love by dealing with the conflict, I'm not saying, because he's not saying, that it will be easy and necessarily rewarding. In fact, let me just go ahead and say, it's one of the toughest things that we do, isn't it? I had a conversation with somebody after the church. I can't say much, but I know both parties involved, and I thought everything was hunky-dory. And he told me down front, hey, last night I had a hard conversation. I know them, and I love them both, and they love each other. It's hard to have a conversation. The first part I have found is the hardest part, and I don't always get it right. The first part, the, the, the breaking the ice part, is the most difficult part. And it's so easy to stutter and stam, st- stumble through it all, to stammer. But don't let that stop you. That's a lot of alliteration, but don't miss the point. Just because you're going to stammer and stumble, don't let it stop you from approaching that person. Because avoidance is not healthy. Let's, can we say that aloud if you're willing to? Just say it. Avoidance is not healthy. It is not good for you. Maybe you're not a person of great faith. Maybe you're not even sure if you believe the Bible. Well, let me just tell you some psychology. It's not good for you to avoid it. It's not. Psychologists have uh, fancy words for this. One phrase is cognitive uh, incapitation. And the idea there is it's just going to drive you crazy if you hold it in. I call it the Jim Carrey effect. As you get madder and madder, you get dumb and dumber. And you can't think straight. It affects you. Don't avoid. Beautiful advice Christ gives us to approach someone. If there's a conflict, you go. Who do you go to? Jesus tells us the fourth point is no third parties. You go to the person. What I love about the scripture is that it's, it's just so real. It's so honest with us. Uh, talking earlier about uh, regret. Regret is such a, a big thing. Regret is, it's, I mean, it's all around us. I wish I'd done this. I wish I hadn't have done that. I, I wish I would have not eaten that food. I wish I hadn't have spent that money. I wish I would have asked her out. I wish I hadn't have asked her out. Um, I wish I wouldn't have acted so impulsively. I wish I'd acted more deliberately. I wish I'd lived with more passion. I wish I'd gone skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing, 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. I wish this, I wish this. We have all these regrets in life. Regret is the woman who's dying of emphysema, who thinks back to that first cigarette and the road that it took her on. It's the man who lost his family due to alcoholism, who thinks back to that first drink and where he is in life. It's the couple who said, I do one day from this day forward. And they're sitting there now dividing their hearts and dividing their assets. How did we get here? Regret is one of the deep human emotions, second only to love. And it correlates. It's a response to love or lack thereof, to the hatred or apathy or love that's gone wrong in our lives, love that's been murdered. And we're going to live with great regret. You know, the scripture, what I love about it is that it gives us people. All throughout scripture, we see people 
who had to deal with regret. Adam and Eve for eating the fruit. Esau for selling his birthright for a bowl of food. Um, Samson for betraying his heritage, telling the secret, losing his strength. Peter for saying, Lord, I'm not going to deny you, even after Christ warned him. And he denied him. David for lust, adultery, cover-up, murder, and such. And you and I, we live with so much regret, or there's the potential there for so much regret in your life and mine, if we can't live this out, to acknowledge it, to own our part, to approach, not to avoid, and then no third parties. And this is one of those that's just so commonly violated. Do you feel me on this? It's just so easy because we say, well, we're going to offer some objective advice or objective facts to someone. And then we're going to go to a neutral bystander to tell them about the conflict with so-and-so. Right? And then we're going to get their honest feedback. That's why I'm going to the third party. Right? Forget Matthew 18, 15. I, I know more than Jesus. I can't turn water into wine and walk on water and do all those things. But I know more than Jesus. I'm going to go to that third party because I'm going to give some objective facts about so-and-so. I'm going to go to this neutral party. They're going to be neutral. And then they're going to give me some honest feedback. Well, it's really all a lie. Have you ever thought about that? You're not going to a neutral party because you're going to someone who doesn't like that person to begin with. Right? And they're going to tell you what you want to hear about that person. They're going to reinforce about that person. Or maybe they don't know what you know that could be negative about that person. But that neutral party, once you tell them, right, they're not going to be so neutral anymore because they didn't know that about so-and-so. Right? And you're not given objective facts, are you? Have you noticed that a lot of times facts are tilted toward you? Or is that just me? Am I the only one? When I come to somebody with all the facts that they're, they're tilted toward me, that the universe is anthropocentric, it revolves around me. And it really is a lie to go to a third party. You see in the scripture, it gives us an account of many conflicts. If you'll read Acts as, as, it, as it moves forward, you'll see that Hebrew-speaking members had conflicts. They caused a ruckus with Greek-speaking uh, members over who was not caring for the widows in Acts chapter 6. In Acts 5, we read this passage boldly a couple of weeks ago. Ananias and Sapphira, they were jealous of some people's reputation. The other people, some other people were uh, reputed to be more generous than they were. That didn't end well for them. Paul and Barnabas, who had a close relationship in spreading the gospel, they had a conflict over a colleague, and it was such a strong disagreement that they dissolved the partnership. Do you, any of you know about a dissolved partnership in business or ministry? I do. You had a relationship, but it's not there anymore. You had a disagreement. And Paul, in writing to the church at Philippi, he says to them, he mentions a couple of women. Now, when you're reading, if you're doing a Bible reading plan, you're just reading through Philippians, you, you won't stop at this part. But he mentions these funny church ladies, Yudaya and Sintichia. And I don't know what they were arguing about. Maybe who had the goofiest name. But Paul says to them, he doesn't say to one, he doesn't say, hey, you go to so-and-so and tell them about them, about the other lady. He didn't tell that lady, hey, you go and get in a small group of six to eight and talk about her. He says, I plead with you, two women with funny names. I plead with you to agree with each other. In other words, no third parties. Get in a room and handle this. Just you two. If there's a conflict, you 
go to the person. And what do you do? Number five, you use sensitivity. It says you go to that person in private. Now, let's say you leave church today and you walk out in Dueling Hall and there is a couple. You don't know them. You don't know the extent of their relationship, if they're married, dating, or just met. And they're just all over each other. Okay? Picture it with me, if you will. They're French kissing, uh, heavy petting. I mean, it's, you know, what would you think? What would you maybe say to them? You might say to them, PDA, right? Public display of affection. G-A-R, get a room, right? If you hang around some people that I hang around with, you might say often TMI, too much information. If you saw the movie Jerry Maguire, you remember when the, the, guy, the character played by Jay Moore is firing Jerry Maguire, i.e. Tom Cruise? And there, he takes him to the restaurant. It's a crowded restaurant. And in that moment, he says, you're fired. The sports agency, we don't need you anymore. You're out of here. And why did he do that? He didn't go in private like Jesus taught. He did it in public. Why? To get him. To stick him. And he didn't want there to be a bigger uproar. Of course, Jerry Maguire made a big uproar later with Dorothy and the goldfish and that scene. Do you remember that, some of you? Here's my point. When you go to someone privately, it attaches value to them. It attaches value to what you want to happen. Because some things just aren't meant for public fodder, right? In a similar way, if you're walking down the hall after church, some of you are like this with me. It's just the way life works. Nobody's at fault, but you'll introduce some idea, some prayer request or something big happening in your life. And you and I will say something like, well, let's, hey, let's catch up. Let's talk. Why? Because this needs to be a private, it needs to be a private thing. When my wife and I were dating so, so long ago, most of you know that we dated coast to coast. And we had a severe long-distance relationship, a severe love affair. We would spend time with each other, and it was dear time because it wasn't that often. And we would fly to see each other, her to my town, me to hers, and we would have these really heartfelt goodbyes at the airport. And it was just sweet, a sweet goodbye. We would recap our time together, and we would start making plans of when we were going to see each other next. I would quote Shakespeare or Chaucer or some poetry or whatever. But I remember one time she dropped me off pre-9-11 at LAX. It was my time to fly back to Florida. And, man, it was like we just had a moment. We were, there was a sky cap. There was, there was uh, shuttle buses and taxis and the exhaust, you know, and people were screaming in all their different languages and everything. It just wasn't the place for a heartfelt goodbye. The scene didn't fit the sentiment. And Jesus has given us really good advice here that if there's a conflict, you go to that person, not a third party, but do it in private. And he says the sixth point, direct confrontation. Now, to love is to confront. Someone else I talked to after the 930 service said, Robert, I'm reading a book uh, called Fierce Conversations. And there's a chapter which the writer says, he, he takes the word confrontation and, and substitutes carefrontation. That's kind of soft, isn't it? Kind of weak. But maybe for some of you that's going to help because confrontation is just too negative of a word, right? Some of you grew up in a home and you never say anything negative, bad, honest about anything, right? I mean, it's like... But confrontation sounds like a bad word. Confrontation is a bad word because of how I do it sometimes, right? 
because of how you do that sometimes. But the carefrontation, going to someone and talking to them. And here's the thing. Sometimes I've seen it in you. I've seen some of you do it because I'm your pastor. I'm your friend. You call me. I'm praying for you. You haven't given me names, but I'm praying for you. And you'll work hard to set up the conversation. You've prayed about it. The very words that you'll say. Man, you're, you're nervous about it. You want it to go well. The outcome is uncertain. But you'll get there and then you'll go, when, when, when there's a moment, the precise moment when clarity is needed, when you need to address the issue, when you need to confront the sin, confront what hurt you, confront what's not right in that other person, you'll go weak. You'll become vague. But that's not love. That's fear. Is this too hard for some of you? Carefrontation? But you're in that, and I've got a friend. He lives out of state. When this is happening to me, when I'm taking the initiative to have a confrontation with someone, I'll call him before and after because he checks my spirit. He knows my weaknesses, and they are many. And he will say to me, he'll say, Robert, how was the last 10%? And the last 10% is that moment when you get there, and you really need to say it, but you soften it. And then they leave and they're not really sure exactly what offended you, what exactly needs to be changed. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? And it takes strength. Some people think being a Christian is being weak. It takes strength. It takes an overcoming of fear and it takes real love to sit down with someone and to finish the last 10%. Because when we do that, you are giving somebody a gift. Now, does it always work out well? No. And I have found from my experience being on both ends of it, sometimes it takes some time. Sometimes it may never go the way you want it to. The last thing that Jesus would say is aim at reconciliation. If there's a conflict, you go to the person in private. Discuss the problem for the purpose of reconciliation. Nothing can be said more important than this today. It's not to inflict pain. Ever talk to people like that? They come and they, 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 they do the last 10%. And they tell you what you've done wrong or where you're hurting them or other people. They mention that in your life, but you're looking for the love. You're like the black eyed peas, man. Where is the love? And it hurts you. And there's, you feel like someone was there to inflict pain on you. They were there to win an argument. But Jesus says you ought to be there to gain a brother. And I stand before you today knowing that I've lost a brother and I've gained many more. But this is the Jesus way to love people. And it's the best way. It's vastly superior to any other way. Aim at reconciliation. To illustrate quickly, I'll say this. Not too long ago, I was parking on a congested one-way street. I was parallel parking, okay? I'm just going to tell you my weakness, parallel parking. And it, there was a man behind me, and it became abundantly clear that he was not happy with my parallel parking skills. And it was, granted, it was a tight space to get into. And because of the street, because of all this, he had to wait on me. And verbally and non-verbally, I began to notice that he's not happy with me. But I didn't want to circle the block again. So I wedged in there. When I did, he pulled up next to me. He said, what are you thinking? What's your problem? And then he 
He called me a name that you can't say in church. It had to do with part of my anatomy. Not too far north, not too far south, kind of below the equator in the western hemisphere. You know what I'm saying? Everybody good? And then after asking me that question, he drove off. It was a provocative question. What's your problem? Sometimes I like people to ask me, hey, what's your problem? We can talk about it, right? Because I got so many problems. But he drove on. He didn't want to know what my problem was. He didn't. He was gone. Gary Watts just drove on, man. He was out of there. (laughs) Heading to some church meeting or something, right? But when that guy that I did not know drove away, I thought about that when I was planning this and thinking, that guy, he got six out of seven right. That ain't bad, is it? Six out of seven? Four out of five dentists surveyed said that this... Cinnamon gum, freshness breath, it's good for you, right? Four out of five is good. Two out of three ain't bad. Meatloaf sang about. That's not bad, two out of three. But Jesus would say six out of seven ain't bad. Now, what did he get right? He acknowledged there's a conflict, didn't he? He came to me. He was very clear. The last 10% of what he said was very clear. I knew what I had done wrong. Wasn't vague, very clear. He didn't go to a third party. He didn't involve other people. It was... I guess you could say it was private, just he and I were next to each other. But he didn't aim at reconciliation. You see what I'm saying? You get that? So six out of seven is not good. And of the seven, this is what ought to stand out to you and me. This is the barometer. This is the gauge. This is the end. Begin with the end in mind. Everything that you do, one through six, ought to be with the end in mind. And I believe, folks, that if you do that, God will give you a lot of wisdom. If you begin with the end in mind on this, that if your goal is to gain a brother. I want to close. I could have taken the tougher road and shared some things from my own life because I will tell you this. I didn't confess this at 930, but uh, I have been wrongly complicit in some of this myself. And in preparing a sermon, it can be very convicting. You guys just have to listen to a sermon, right? Or part of it anyway, or some of it, whatever. But I got to preach it. And it kind of, it can weigh on me uh, more at times. And this one has, because I've been complicit with some of you. And I want to be a better leader. I want to be a man more like Jesus. A better friend to some of you to help you with one through seven. Pastor friend who wrote a book. Put it this way, this lack of forgiveness, this not handling in the right way leads to bitterness. A little bitterness, he says, goes a long way. Add a little bitterness to any environment and watch it suffer. A few bitter teens can derail a whole youth group. A couple of bitter moms can poison a PTA board. A bitter deacon can split a church. You probably noticed that one bitter person can destroy morale in a work environment. A little griping here, some more complaining there. Add some backbiting and gossip and your workplace becomes hell on earth. Bitterness can also destroy a family faster than you could say pop goes the weasel. Take any family betrayal, a divorce, a broken promise, an addiction, a misunderstanding. Let the problem divide people into two sides. Force them to pick one and you've got a problem that could divide a family for a lifetime. Bitterness never produces good results. Because a person's been hurt, they often justify their bitterness. If they are cruel or angry to another, they feel completely justified. Only I feel this way because of what she did to me. She had this coming. 
the bitter person quickly becomes overly critical. The Bible says that love keeps no records of wrongs, but bitterness keeps detailed accounts. Looking through a lens of hurt, all bitter people can do is find fault. I can't believe he acts that way. Who does he think he is? They may even secretly celebrate another person's misfortunes. When something bad happens, they simply believe this person had it coming. It's not uncommon for someone to write off a whole group of people. A betrayed man thinks that all women are deceivers. A disappointed person decides all Christians are hypocrites. An abused child might decide you can't trust any adult. The problem is that many bitter people don't know they are bitter. Since they are so convinced that they are right, they can't see their own wrong in the mirror. And the longer the roots of bitterness grows, the more difficult it is to recover. Do you pray? Father, this is uh, one that could hit us real hard. Because when we're confronted with uh, something that's easy to understand, but so um, abused and misapplied, or just not applied. And I can't help but think the, the third week in November, as we're on the threshold, so many of us, of being around families, parents, siblings, children, uncles and aunts, and maybe being around a table in a living room out back with some folks who just don't seem to be emotionally healthy. There just seems to be a lot of dysfunction and uh, so many environments where just so few have grown up with Matthew eighteen fifty, So few dads who've led the way. So few moms who've taken these words and lived them out. God, I love you and I love your word and I love how it speaks to us today. And I pray today now, Father, for our church, for this one right here that we wouldn't be a split church or a divided church. We'd be a sending church to send folks out, to usher them into the next thing that you have for them. But Lord, that out of this, we wouldn't grow another Fondren church or an only true Fondren church. But that you'd allow us to stick together, to love each other, to grow deeper roots, to live like a, a family that's growing, in Jesus. I pray for the hardness among us, for those of us who really love the truth so much we wield it like a sword and we hurt others. And I pray for those, uh, there's probably so many more of us who are just so soft and so weak that we think love is never confronting and never saying the 100%, the final 10%. Lord, in my own life, I know that I've been fearful of losing people or offending people. And I know that I, I have been wrongly complicit in violating these seven things that you give us so clearly. Lord, when we confront and it doesn't go well, we can be left with some wounded and bitter people, but you give us a gift. It's a miracle that's greater than an Auburn miracle from yesterday's football game. It's a miracle called forgiveness. God, help us not to keep a record of wrong. Help us to live out Colossians 3. I pray in this moment for Colossians 3, 12 to 14, for this church family.
these people here, for any visitors today. Your word is beautiful. Conflict is inevitable. Resentment is optional. Lord, I pray that it would stay with us and weigh on us. But Lord, as we pray often, Lord, let this not be a sermon of condemnation, but a sermon of conviction that you would lead us in a better way. These truths are so great. And it can lead us into health and happiness and above all, a way that honors you. We pray in Jesus. Amen.